In preparation for introducing our speaker this evening, I had a lot to say, and he says, please just say two sentences and leave the rest of the time for preaching, and I asked him to tell a little bit about the school. He was a missionary for 10 years in the West Indies, and now for 10 years he has been the president of Piedmont International University. But actually, let me just tell you a few other things, all right? Dr. Charles Pettit grew up in Virginia and then was raised in South Carolina, graduated in 1985 with a bachelor in theology degree, Baptist University of America. But during his college years, he was working at a multicultural church in Atlanta, burdened his heart then to go on and become a church planter missionary in the West Indies, and that church in turn has planted many other churches. He was awarded then a Doctor of Divinity degree from Temple University, and then in 2002, Piedmont Baptist Bible College and Graduate School asked him to become the president, and God led him there. Over the years, the school has grown. As a matter of fact, last year they had the largest enrollment under his leadership in 66 years. Great programs of some things now that have been taking place. He'll tell you more about that. But Piedmont International University now is at that status. But it's a delight to have Dr. Charles Pettit with us this evening. Let's welcome him to the pulpit. Thank you. Thanks a lot. It's a delight to be back at Colonial. I uh, have recently gotten into the Twitter world, and so my tweet this afternoon was about my love for this church, my appreciation for your pastor, and how much I enjoyed hearing my friend Matt Olson preach this morning. You guys, it's just not fair that you have everything at your church and that the rest of us don't have it. And uh, it's wrong. You guys need to be more sharing. Uh, to the rest of us. But man, you know, if, if all you had were your programs, if all you had were your facilities, if all you had uh, was the music, and if you didn't even have Stephen Davey, but you do, it's just not fair to the rest of us. And, uh, you know, I, there's a lot of people who are smarter than me, but some of them are really condescending, but your pastor isn't one of those. And I really appreciate his demeanor and his humble spirit. I love you, pastor. Thank you for allowing me to be here with you again. And, uh, I, uh, if you are a Twitter person, it's at Charles Pettit, and you can follow me as I follow Christ. And if I stop doing that, you should you know, disconnect. We'll mention briefly about the school. Uh, we are in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I've been there 67 years, or in our 67th year. And our uh, passion is to train those who really want to use their lives to make a difference. We train those who really have a heart for God and his work and his word, and those who want to do something with that. And we have a variety of programs and relationships that might be beneficial to you or someone you know. I was asked specifically to mention our relationship with High Point University. Almost a decade ago, we developed an articulation agreement with them so that our education majors, all of the different education majors except for music ed, they don't have a music ed program at High Point, and so we could not have an agreement about that program. But all the rest of our ed majors the students actually graduate from both schools. So they come enroll at Piedmont International University. They get that good Bible core and Bible foundation in our education program. But four years later, on a Friday night in May, they march at Piedmont, receive their bachelor's degree from Piedmont. And then the next morning, Saturday morning, they march again at High Point University and receive their second bachelor's degree. With that comes all the Christian certifications, both ACSI and AACS and you get national and regional accreditation and state licensure and reciprocity across the country. It's a very, very nice situation, and it's very affordable. I have often said, don't tell my friends at High Point University that I said this, but you can come to Piedmont and graduate from High Point 
for a fraction of the cost it takes just to go to High Point alone. So it's a really, it's a really good route to get to both degrees. We have a variety of programs available and the close proximity in our four-day class week would make it convenient for students from here. Uh, we only go to school Monday through Thursday. When they get out on Thursday afternoon, they're free. They could drive home, get their laundry done, have some home cooking, and not have to worry about coming back. They could be here at Colonial on Sunday and not have to go back till Sunday night. So it's a very convenient situation. Our most popular major, probably, at least I think our biggest population and biggest enrollment is our Christian ministry program that allows a student to choose two minors. A lot of students come to Piedmont with a heart for the Lord. They really want to serve Christ, but they're not sure in what capacity. And so they start off in a, maybe a missions major and switch to counseling or something. This allows them to choose from a grocery list of minors. If they want to study nonprofit management and counseling, they can. If they want to do music and youth, they can. And so they can combine some things there as well. We have very affordable tuition for an accredited university. And we also, over 67 years, have been blessed with a number of gifts that fund a variety of scholarships. And so really, if you take a look at the whole package and the possibility of federal financial aid, it becomes extremely affordable and doable. There's some information out there in the foyer on the display, or you can just Google Piedmont International University and take a look at the programs online. The infomercial is over. And all God's people said, <laughs> I was afraid of that. All right, <laughs> grab your uh, iPad, iPod, iPhone, Droid, or other smart device and open it to Hebrews 11. And if you still have one of those uh, OSPL devices, uh, onion skin paper in leather, you can use that as well if you like. I've been want- wanting to get one of these for a while, and I wasn't really sure if I could afford the cost of having something that just duplicates my laptop. And then I, uh, I received one in the most unusual way. I took a donor out to lunch and uh, we were talking about a Piedmont project and, and he was very interested. He got very animated. He's one of those guys who talks with his hands and the meal was over, but we still both had drinks at the table and he uh, talked his hand into the glass of iced tea, turned it over. I had my, uh, my MacBook on the table and the iced tea came pouring across on and into my MacBook. I grabbed it as fast as I could and I pulled it away, but not in time to stop the damage. It died instantly. Well, he felt horrible. Oh, I'm so, so sorry. I killed your computer. I'll buy you another one. And I said, well, you know, it may be okay. We'll let it dry out and, and see, see if it's okay. No, I'm going to buy you another. I said, well, you know, let's just check it out and make sure. Well, I went back to the office after we finished. And as I was going back, I was thinking about the laptop and, and, uh, and I realized that I had grabbed it by maybe the power button. And so when I got back to the office, I hit the power button and sure enough, it came right back on. <laughs> but he had already called my office about three times saying, I feel so badly. Can I please buy the president another laptop? And I told my secretary, we'll call him back and tell him the laptop is fine. He wouldn't believe it. He's just telling me that so that I won't have to buy him a laptop. And I was thinking, no, I was a missionary for 10 years. I'd let you buy me a laptop. (laughs) But he just kept calling. So around 4.30, the secretary came in and told me he'd call it again. I said, listen, if he calls one more time, tell the man his laptop is fine. But if you're feeling guilty, you can buy him an iPad. (laughs) She said, I can never do that. (laughs) 
I said, oh, you can and you will or I'll fire you. <laughs> so she did and uh, I have me an iPad. <laughs> I'm not sure if the Lord's gonna bless it, but we'll try, see what happens tonight. It's <laughs> not the way to build your Twitter following right there. <laughs> Hebrews 11, you're familiar with this passage. And we'll look at it again. I thought it just fit so well with your theme for the summer. And so we'll dig into it together. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, faith of course, the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And by it, he being dead, yet speaketh. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony. (laughs) Wouldn't you like to have this testimony? That he pleased God. But there's a caveat or a condition. Verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to do what Enoch did. It's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and don't miss the conjunction here, And there's a second thing. If you're going to please God, there's a second thing you have to believe. Not only that he is, but that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And then through the rest of the chapter, you have that phrase you see at the beginning of verse 7. By faith, Noah. Next verse, by faith, Abraham. And then by faith, the patriarchs. And by faith, Moses, and so forth through the rest of the chapter. Let's uh, ask God once again to bless our time and to truly speak to us through his word. Father, thank you for allowing me to be here at Colonial again. Thank you for the influence this church has been in my life. Thank you for Stephen Davey and his love towards so many of us, his graciousness, that he was there for me three or four years ago when I went through a challenging time. Just pray you'd bless him and this church and everything that they do. We ask that you would speak through your word to our minds and our wills so that we would act upon what we hear and what we read. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Before we dig into this, let me just ask a question. How many of you here have ever been involved in paratrooping or you've done some skydiving? Let me, let me see your hands. Skydivers. Any skydivers? I've got a couple of skydivers back there. Oh, I've got somebody back here. Well, let me ask you, the skydivers were all in the back. And uh, solid Baptist, too, I'm sure. Um, well, those of you that have done some skydiving, did they make you like, did you have to wear a helmet? Some yes, some no. Jumpsuit? Jump. Did you have to wear special protective boots? Maybe? Well, well let me ask... Uh, all of you who've never done any skydiving, if you had a chance to do so, how many of you would if you had a chance? Liars. Uh, 
you can do it anytime you want. So, <laughs> no, maybe I would too. I don't know. We'll see. Get the right opportunity. Well, let me ask the uninitiated, those who have never done any skydiving, let me ask all of us a question. What do you think, you know, boots, helmet, what do you think are important pieces of equipment you should wear if you're going to do some skydiving? Parachute. All right. Okay. In fact, it's at least possible that a parachute might be in a category all by itself. You know, all those other things would enhance the skydiving experience, make you enjoy the day a little more. You know, even a nice camera might be nice. But if you forget your parachute, it might not go so well. Nevertheless, according to Fox News, on June 8th, 2008, a 29-year-old New Yorker leaped out of a plane at 10,000 feet with a nice camera and no parachute. He'd gotten a little carried away. He was supposed to be an observer on this flight. But he followed the instructor, the student, and the videographer out the door. Can you imagine the moment of realization? Police said that his body was found next to a house with a damaged roof. Lots of things might enhance the skydiving experience. We talked about some of those things, but this guy had forgotten the one thing in a category all by itself. The one thing without which it's impossible to have a great skydiving experience. He had forgotten his parachute. Well, there are lots of things in the Bible that enhance the Christian experience. But there's something in Hebrews 11 that's in a category all by itself. It is the only thing in the entire Bible without which... It is impossible to please God. The text does not say it is unlikely, more difficult, more challenging. The text says without faith, it is impossible to please God. But I want to say that this one necessary ingredient, this thing that's in a category all by itself, if you're going to make God happy, might be a little different than we would think at first blush. You hear the word faith, and our culture tells us that means certain things. In our culture, faith basically means religion. He or she is a person of faith. That is a faith-based initiative. It came out of a religious group. Or we might reduce faith to nothing more than just believing in God. And what I'm going to share with you for the next couple of minutes might come across a little bit hard or harsh, You might find yourself saying, you know, I'm not really sure it means that. But as we dig into the text, I think you'll agree. It can't really mean that. I'm not really sure I agree with what you're saying. Because if that's the definition of a Hebrews 11 kind of faith, well, there's a lot of Christians that don't have it. I might even seem a little offensive. If so, I'm sorry. That's not my goal. I like people to like me and to follow me on Twitter. But I feel compelled to make the following statement. If you believe that the Hebrews 11 kind of faith, and let me choose my words carefully, is nothing more than believing God or believing in God and believing in the Bible, you're wrong. It's not less than those, as we're going to see. Those are foundational. The very text says, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is That's the foundation. It starts by saying, yes, I believe that Almighty God created the universe. And I believe that Jesus Christ is his son. We were singing that majestic song, that doctrinal song about what we believe. 
That's foundational. And, and believing that the Bible is God's word is foundational. Romans clearly says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the, the word of God. Those are foundational, but they're also somewhat passive. You know, you could sit in a chair. I could pull a chair out here and sit in it as you can in a, in a pew or in your chair. And I could sit there and say, I believe in God. I believe that he is the creator of this universe. I believe in the Genesis account of creation. I believe that God sent his son to this earth and that he was born of a virgin and he lived a sinless life and he died a substitutionary death on the cross. He had a bodily resurrection that he ascended back to heaven, that he's coming back as the scriptures say. There's going to be a rapture. There's going to be a tribulation. There's going to be a revelation. There's going to be a millennial kingdom. You can believe all of that. You can sit in your chair and believe that. That's a good thing. You should. I believe Jesus Christ died for me. And like all of those children at Vacation Bible School, I love that video this morning. You know, a child at Vacation Bible School can sit in the chair and say, yes, I believe Jesus died for me. And I, I want to trust Jesus. You can sit in your chair and say, I believe that this Bible that I brought to church is based on inspiration. God inspired it. Those are important things. But the Hebrews 11 kind of faith takes all of that foundational material and then it gets out of the chair and it goes and it does something with it. It doesn't stop with believing God and believing in Jesus and believing the Bible. It takes action. You must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them who diligently seek him. So it's not just passive, it it becomes action. And I want to be very clear about the fact that the Hebrews 11 kind of faith, the kind that's necessary in a category by itself, if you're going to please God, has everything to do with being willing to take risky steps to accomplish something special for God's glory as he guides. All of these stories, by faith, Noah, the very next passage, all these stories share that in common. They're stories about these heroes and heroines of faith who are people of action, They stepped out to accomplish something in God's work and in ministry. And usually it was risky. Verse 7 talks about Noah. It has to be risky to spend 120 years of your life building a 450-foot boat in the backyard. What if it doesn't rain? There's going to be a really big monument to your stupidity out back. It has to be risky if your name is Abraham, mentioned next, and you're asked to step out and take a risk, leave your family and your culture and the security of your city and head off to some promised land pre-GPS, pre-Google Maps. Head off to some place that God is going to show you. It's got to be risky to take a knife and fully intend to plunge it into the heart of your child of promise because you believe that God is going to take care of that situation. It's got to be risky if your name is Moses, mentioned later in this text. And you pretty much single-handedly take on the most powerful military on earth and its elite leader, Pharaoh. It's got to be risky if your name is Rahab, mentioned in this text, 
and you're aiding and abetting foreign spies from an army conquering your land. But that's exactly why they needed faith. The great missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, said, without risk, there is no need for faith. If you never take a risk, why would you need it? And I love the fact that David is mentioned down around verse 32. Because you can't show me anywhere in the Bible where God gave David a clear command to go take on Goliath. You're not going to show me the verse. Thou shalt go shut up that big blasphemous giant. David simply saw a cause worthy of the risk. You know, his brothers and the entire army, is, it, is this stable out here? I don't want to see me on YouTube. I need a parachute. Very good. I don't want to forget that and be up here. You know, David's brothers and the whole army of Israel, and even King Saul, had what I would call passive faith. They were sitting up there on the hill. You know, they were just sitting there saying, we believe in God. <laughs> we believe in the scriptures. But that giant is big. David gets out of the chair and says, is there not a cause? Is there a cause worth a consideration of a risk in your life right now? Something through the ministries of this great church? Something you could dive into and get involved in? Is there not a risk you could take? And I also love the fact that not only is there not a command to go take on Goliath, but you cannot show me a promise where God says, I promise if you do go fight Goliath, nothing bad is going to happen to you. Now, David had a lot of confidence, he had a lot of experience, but he did not have a promise of protection, and not everybody who steps out by faith for God is protected. This chapter talks about people who died at the point of a sword. They stepped out, they did something for God, and it ended up getting them killed. We'll get back to that in a minute, because that's not all bad either. He took a risk. It's got to be risky if you're a teenager armed with nothing more than a slingshot and five rocks, and you're taking on a man twice your height, armed to the teeth, trained in warfare, and surrounded by bodyguards. <laughs> and it just made God happy. Kind of makes earthly daddies happy, too. I have two daughters. Back when they were younger, I used to do things. I, I might be sadistic, I don't know, but I would take one of my daughters and I'd put them on a platform, maybe something about this high. And I would say to whichever one, maybe Alicia, you know, she's three years old. Alicia, jump to daddy. Ooh, there's ground down there. It looks hard. If daddy doesn't catch me, this is going to hurt. I don't want to. Oh, come on, jump. I don't want to. I'm scared. Oh, I'll get a little bit closer. So finally she works up her determination and takes a deep breath and lunges into space and flies three inches to daddy's outstretched arms. Wow, Daddy, that was great. Let's do it again. And we're going to go five inches this time. And I kind of liked it when they trusted me enough to take a little risk and let me toss them a little bit in the air, a little catch your breath. And it seems that God is pleased when his people are willing to step out for him, dive into something, not be passive and lethargic, but active and participating and taking a risk or two if necessary. So we need to be people of faith because it pleases God. But there's another reason. 
Faith in God is cool. I have daughters who just came through their teenage years. I should use that awesome word. You know, faith enables people in this chapter to do amazing things. Like, verse 27, see the invisible. Superman can't do that. He can look through a wall, but he can't see invisible stuff. People of faith have. How about do the impossible? It's impossible for a couple in their 90s to be having children. Read verse 12. How about understand the unfathomable things scientists can't figure out even with a multi-billion dollar collider? Read verse 3. But I want to zero in for just a few minutes on just one of these. See the invisible. In verse 1, you have this very interesting phrase. It says that faith is the evidence of things what? Not seen. Now, it's easy to misunderstand this. You would easily assume that these are things that can't be seen because the text says not seen. But if you thought that, you'd miss the point. The idea is that these are things that are not seen by normal eyes, but the people with eyes of faith saw them very clearly. I love the irony that a chapter that begins with a verse that says not seen is completely full of people seeing stuff. In fact, the word see or looked or saw is woven all through this chapter. In verse 7, Noah sees a flood that other people haven't seen yet. It's fairly obvious that he can see it. After all, he's 200 feet into the 450-foot boat. He's seeing a flood coming. In verse 10, Abraham sees a future city. No one else can see it, but he can see it because he has eyes of faith to see the invisible The patriarchs see promises that will happen later on after they're dead and gone. Joseph sees a future exodus and Moses sees God. God gives these people a vision of the future. They had eyes of faith to see down the road what others could not see. And that's what verse 1 is saying. Faith enables you to treat the invisible as if you can see it, because you can. Evidence of things not seen. And to treat the future as if it's now. Substance of things hoped for. If you're still hoping for something, it hasn't happened yet. Uh, Like if you're a Cubs fan. No, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm enjoying my last time here, Pastor. This is is nice. (laughs) Wow. You know, Abraham sets off. He's hoping to reach this promised land. He's hoping for this future city. Noah's hoping to have this boat ready so that his family can be saved. They, they have this ability to see the invisible and to treat the future as if it's now. And my question to you is, what will you see? What vision of the future will God give you to inspire you to take a risky step of faith for him? to share the gospel more, to reach out to your cul-de-sac, to dive into that ministry. It's here. The opportunity is ready. What will you see? And just to encourage you to go ahead and, and take the step because you'll never do the impossible until you see the invisible. But before I conclude by 
sharing some of the how with us. Let me, uh, let me tell you what bothers me, uh, what irritates me. It irritates me when secular people seem to understand and grasp principles that are truly biblical better than God's people do. You know, many laws and principles are universal. It really doesn't matter if you're saved or lost. Gravity works the same for everyone. If a saved and an unsaved guy both jump out of a plane without a parachute, the landing's going to be rough for both of them. And so many of those principles, sowing and reaping and different things, are just universal. And it irritates me to no end when I see the secular world, including people that may not even know God, doing a better job of understanding and harnessing the power of a vision going for a dream more than God's people. This is a picture of Monty Roberts. He tells a story about his younger days when he was in high school. He was the son of a horse trainer. And so they uh, moved from town to town and farm to farm and ranch to ranch, training people's horses. His education was always interrupted. Finally, he was a senior in high school. And a teacher asked the class, to have everyone write an essay about what they wanted to do and be when they grew up. He got excited about his dream. He wrote a beautiful seven-page paper about his dream of one day owning a horse ranch. He had a certain kind of horse that he wanted to breed on his ranch. He wrote in great detail about the way the farm, the ranch would be laid out. It was going to have 200 acres. It was going to have corrals and barns. And he even drew in a 4,000 square foot ranch house right in the middle of his site plan. And he drew a floor plan for his 4,000 square foot ranch house. He got it exactly the way he wanted and proudly turned it into the teacher. The next day he got the paper back and it had a huge red written in bold magic marker F all the way across the page and a note that said, see me after class. Well, Monty went to the teacher and said, why did you give me an F? She said, because that is an unrealistic dream for a poor boy like you. You come from a traveling family. You have no resources. Do you have any idea how much that kind of horse would cost to buy the original breeding stock, to pay the stud fees and 200 acres out here? Do you have any idea how much land costs and a 4,000 square foot ranch house? Give me a break. But here's what I'll do for you, the teacher said. If you'll go back and rewrite the paper with more realistic goals, I will reconsider your grade. Monty took the paper home and he thought about it long and hard. In fact, he sat on it for a week. At which point he turned in the exact same paper, making no changes at all. He said to his teacher, ma'am, respectfully, you can keep the F. I'm going to keep my dream. Today... Monty Roberts owns a 200-acre horse ranch. He's got some of the best breeding stock in the southwestern United States. People come from far and wide to buy his stock. He has a 4,000-square-foot ranch house right in the middle of his 200-acre horse ranch. And he still has that paper, you know, the one with the big, giant, red, bold, magic marker F. It's beautifully framed and hangs on his giant stone fireplace. Now, he refused to let a teacher crush his dreams. And when you look back in history or even around us today at those men and women who are considered outstanding in their fields, 
There's usually one quality they possess that sets them apart from others. They are the people with a dream. Look at the Olympics. Look at the inventors. Look at at the explorers. Those who have been judged as having accomplished great things. What's the common denominator? At some point in time, they were captured and captivated by a dream so that it became the driving force in their lives and they had the ability to accomplish goals that seemed just out of reach of other people who were just as talented. Having a vision meant they were able to see in their mind's eye the way they wanted something to be. My favorite illustration of that comes from Disney World. It took years to build that amazing park down there outside of Orlando. And during those years of construction, somewhere in that process, Walt Disney passed away. And so they asked Mrs. Disney to give the keynote address. It ended up being two words. You wish preachers could do this. The man who introduced her said a lot of flowery things about her, and she was making her way up with her speech in hand to give her keynote address. But as she approached the microphone, he said, Mrs. Disney, wouldn't it have been great if Walt could have seen all of this? She walked up to the microphone and said, he did, and sat down long before any of them had seen it. Before they ever put those LLCs together and started buying those pieces of land west of Orlando, Walt had seen it. Now, if secular people can accomplish these kinds of things by pursuing a dream, how much more should God's people accomplish great things for God and his glory and in and through our ministries, not just through pursuing a personal dream, but through faith in the almighty, all-powerful God. And so again, I ask you, what will you see? What is your dream? Where will the eyes of faith lead you? What is your vision of where you think God might want you to be next year or maybe even 20 years down the road? You know, it takes 120 years to build an ark. Sometimes faith has to have long-range goals. Those who have accomplished vision usually share the following formula. After seeing in their mind's eye the way they wanted something to be, they then did the really hard work of carefully thinking through the major incremental goals, mapping out the steps, writing down the plan, and then taking those first risky steps. In the book, What They Don't Teach You in the Harvard Business School, Mark McCormick tells about a study conducted on students in the 1979 Harvard MBA program. In that year, the students were asked this question. Have you set written goals, clear written goals, for your future and made plans to accomplish them? Only 3% of the graduates that year in the Harvard MBA program had written goals and a written plan to accomplish them. 13% had goals, but not in writing. (laughs) And a whopping 84% had no specific goals at all. Ten years later, they tracked them down and interviewed them again. They found that the 13% of the class who had goals were earning, on average, 
twice as much as the 84% who had no goals. And what about the 3% that had clear, specific, measurable, written goals? They were each earning, on average, 10 times more than the other 97% combined. In spite of many such studies and much proof of success, most people, including many Christians, don't have clear, measurable, time-bounded goals and written plans that they're working toward. And that is why they end up being in the same place in August 2012 that they were in August 2011 will be the same in August 2013. It's not going to cause growth. Now, why is this kind of faith so rare? Why do we have just one chapter with a hall of faith instead of 20 or 30 chapters? Why is it so rare in so many churches? Maybe a couple of reasons. It stands in direct contrast to our natural inclination and preference for security and our tendency to live in the past instead of the future. Always clinging to what we don't want to lose instead of going for what God would have us gain. I illustrated this at Piedmont by auctioning off a $20 bill. I actually sold a $20 bill in chapel for $67 to legitimate bidders. I'll tell you how to do this. If you ever broke, this works. People do get mad at you, so be careful. But I held up a 20 and I said, this is for sale to the highest bidder. I said, if the highest bidder today bids $3, you will get a 20 for three bucks. But there are some rules you need to understand before you get into this auction. Rule number one, we're going to start at $1 and you have to bid in $1 increments. Rule number two, you have to have the money. If you bid $2, you have to have $2. We're not making change here. You give me two, I'll give you the 20. Rule number three, and this is the important rule. I said, do not get into this auction today unless you understand this rule. But in today's auction, the second highest bidder will also pay whatever he or she has bid and will get nothing. So I said, if the auction ends at $3, the person who bid $3 is going to give me $3. I'm going to give that person a 20. But the person who bid $2 is going to have to give me $2 and that person will get nothing. So I said, do not get into this auction today unless you are willing to be the second highest bidder because someone is going to be and you're not going to be very happy. We started the auction at a dollar. We are Bible school oriented. There's a lot of folks who need money. Lots of hands in the air at one dollar. Two, three, man, it went fast. In no time, we're up eight, nine, ten. People dropping out like flies, afraid that they may be the second highest bidder. In just minutes, we were up to 19 and 18. Only two guys left. The guy who had bid 18 was starting to think something like this. Oh, my goodness. I should have figured this out sooner. If I stop now, I'm going to lose 18 bucks. You know, I'd rather break even than lose 18 bucks. He bid 20. The guy who had bid 19 was thinking, wait a minute. I should have figured this out a little sooner. If I stop now, I'm going to lose $19. You know, I'd rather lose $1 than $19. He bid 21. 22, 23. It went up to 34 and 33 before the guy with $33 ran out of money. He said to me, if I'd had 100, I would have bid to 100. (laughs) 
One guy handed me $34, I gave him a 20. <laughs> the other guy gave me $33, I gave him nothing. <laughs> Before I finish here today, I should tell you that the guilt did get to me, and a couple weeks later, I did give their money back, just to, just to let you know. <laughs> but I said, what's the point? I said, the point is this. I said, up until the bidding reached $20, you were bidding because you were trying to you know, make a profit. You were trying to gain something. But after it passed $20, there was nothing left to gain. Now you were bidding to try to avoid losing so much. And I said, too many of you are going to graduate from Piedmont. You're going to go through life that way. Working hard to avoid losing instead of going for it. Always clinging to what used to be instead of what can be. Focusing too much on where we were instead of where we need to go. And yes, that feels safer and this feels risky and messy. It's like driving your car. The windshield is always messier than the rearview mirror. But you're not going to get anywhere safely if all you do is spend your time looking back at where you used to be through that nice, clean rearview mirror. It's all right to look back every now and then, but if you're going to go forward, you're going to have to look forward. Well, that's what Hebrews 11 kind of faith is all about. It has to do with seeing the future, developing a vision, setting incremental goals, doing the really hard work of writing out a plan, taking the first risky steps forward into the unknown with confidence in God. It might be a plan that takes only a few days like Rahab. It might be a plan that takes years like Noah. You guys support a ministry. And so I decided to talk about it. Bobby Gupta came from India to Piedmont, graduated, went back to India. Before he went back, he went all the way to Ph.D. He had a passion of having an impact in India with theology and Bible training and ministry training. His dream, long-term dream, is to plant a million churches in India. His short-term goal was 10,000. His friend said, come on, Bobby, be realistic. This is India. This is a Hindu-Muslim country. If you can start one church, you'll be lucky. He said, we don't need one. We need to start with 10,000. He's written this book, Breaking Tradition to Accomplish Vision. He says, there's some things about the American Bible college and seminary scene that are great for theological training, but... They're not great for getting risk takers to go out. He said, we don't need people who graduate and go out and take a pension, get a salary. We need guys who go out and take a risk and plant a church. And so they adjusted their training. They have on-the-job training. They send a guy out to work with another church planter, and they may get 20 of them in a city. And they send their teachers out to that city, and these guys gather, and they get their theology class there. And then they go back to work. And then a few weeks later, another teacher comes out. They get another theology class. Bobby was here in May. I said, how are you doing on that goal? <laughs> Bobby said, well, if you count every preaching point in India that we know of, it's probably around a half a million. But he said, if you discount what we call the church, they have a structure, they have about 50 people coming, we're right at 5,000. We can you consider that there are only 10,000 independent Baptist churches in all the United States? Well, that's quite amazing. Bobby says, 
I think we're just getting started. I think that God is smiling. Does it always work that way? If you step out by faith, do you always accomplish the vision? A lot of people do. Abraham did reach the land. Moses did leave the Israelites out of Egypt. Noah did get the boat finished. But this chapter talks about people who died at the point of swords. Uh, Sawn asunder. In researching for this message, I read about that horrible way of death. I'm quite sure it wasn't anyone's dream. You know, my vision is one day to have men tie me upside down to two poles. One leg to this pole, one leg to that pole, and then saw me in half. I'm pretty sure that wasn't the dream. They stepped out. They did something for God. They took a risk. And it seemed to end so differently than the dream. It ended in pain and agony. Most likely screaming. But it was okay. Because one second in eternity. Seeing how happy God is made that seem like nothing. Romans 8 compares the struggles of this life to the serious child of God, to the labor pains of a mother giving birth. I realize we're in church and in this venue I can't share a lot of detail, but I was a coach in the delivery room twice. (laughs) I watched my lovely wife in intense pain. Her face makes it look to me like it's unbearable pain. Those contractions get closer and they get more intense. And she's screaming and she's holding my hand and she's trying to endure. It's horrible, it's painful, it's unbearable. (laughs) And then the baby is born. (laughs) And you take that baby and it's cleaned up for a couple of seconds. You take that baby and put it on her chest. And look at her face now. And you're looking at the face of an angel full of rapture and glory and peace and happiness. Yes, there was some pain. I can hardly remember that. That that was nothing. This is everything. Take the risk. You can't help but win. We won't have time to develop it tonight, but the next chapter says, That we are to be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Uh, It doesn't stop there, though. It says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He had a dream. (laughs) Redemption complete. Reunion with the Father. And so he endured. I guess it's not risky for God. It just seems risky for me, to Almighty, for Almighty God, to become a baby in a world that wants to kill him. 
Seems risky to me to have your own disciples desert you, to have a kiss of betrayal on your cheek, to be tried in a kangaroo court and to be beaten and to have your beard plucked, to be beaten, scourged, nailed to a tree. Not only the pain and the dying, but for my sins to be placed on him there. You know, we can't understand this agony. It's hard for us to grasp this eternal dance of love that has taken place between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, this thing that we call the Trinity, the Father and the Son. They love each other. They're, they're, they're one, really. And yes, yet this breach takes place on Calvary. I can't grasp it. Eternal love. And now, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This breach is the holy God become sin so that I can become righteous. He's buried in a grave for three days and then a resurrection. And then after some time, an ascension to heaven and father and son come back together and the son has finished the will of the father and he presents redemption complete. Can you imagine the joy Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Take risky steps. Please God. How can you see the hand of God in your life journey? By looking unto Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, all these things are sometimes easier to preach than they are to live. But Lord, I pray that we would not only believe that you are, but that you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. And Father, help us to be like Jesus, to have the goal, the vision, to take the steps and have the endurance. In Christ's name, amen.